Hey, listen, uh, you've probably heard the story where a bear is chasing a guy, and every time the man looks back, the bear is getting closer and closer, and in desperation, the man cries out, oh God, please make this bear a Christian so he won't eat me. And just then the bear catches up to him, knocks him to the ground, and the bear is just about ready to get him, and then he stops and he kneels down on his knees, and the man thinks that he's miraculously saved, and he hears the bear pray these words, Lord, thank you for this food I'm about to eat. Now, here's the question. Was the bear a Christian? Just because he prayed before his meal, does that make him a Christian? Hmm. I mean, he was doing something Christian, right? But was he really changed? No. He, he was still a bear, doing bear things, but he was just praying. So here's the point. You and I, we're the bear. Hmm. And for too many of us, we may think we're a Christian. We may think that we're following Jesus, but when actually we're acting like a bear to those around us. We're a bear who prays. We're a bear who goes to church. We're a bear who has a Bible. But we haven't changed. We're still a bear. See, friends, I want you to get this down on the top of your outline today. We're, we're going to hit some text really quickly. I, I know, don't freak out if it's a three-page outline, but it's just a lot of text. We want to hit a story today that I hope it will change your life. And I want this phrase, this idea, this truth right up front to grab you. Following Jesus should change my heart and life. I want you to get that down. Following Jesus should change my heart and life. Come on, say it with me. Following Jesus should change my heart and life. Look to somebody next to you and just tell them, don't stay a bear, okay? Just tell them, don't, don't continue to be a bear. You should be changed. Something should happen in your life. I should change. If I'm following Jesus, just think about it logistically. Following Jesus, you see the screen, we're following him. He's going somewhere. And so just, just physically, logistically, it makes sense, right? If he's moving, I'm moving. And in order for me to move, I have to what? Change. I have to change. Following Jesus should change me. It should change you. Inside and out. But all too often, being Christian becomes something we do. And no change ever affects our heart and life on the inside. Too many people just add Christianity onto however they're already living, like sprinkles on yogurt or ketchup on fries. Christianity has become a condiment in our lives. And that's scary because that's not what Jesus wants. Following Jesus should change you. It should change me. It should change my heart and my life. That's why Paul tells Jesus followers, look what he says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature wants. So just think about this. Our sinful nature wants us to do what? Evil. 
but the Spirit wants us to do the opposite of evil, which would be what? The opposite of evil is good. It's good versus evil, right? And that's exactly what's taking place in our life. Paul continues, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, uh, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. And you know, this is not all-encompassing. Paul doesn't list every sin. And if there's something in there that's not listed, you can say, oh, well, I can get away with it because it's not on the list. No, because Paul right there at the end, what does he say? And every other sin like these. So sometimes we live in the like these category, right? And we have things in our lives that are like these. And Paul is saying that that's coming from our sinful nature. It's opposite of what the Holy Spirit wants in our life. Look what it says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. And that's what we're talking about in this series, this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he wraps it off. He says, since we are living by the Spirit, let us also follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So we've been studying this passage, uh, Galatians 5, for, for several weeks now. And today, the focus is on one quality of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's goodness. Goodness. And in our culture... Good has a lot of meanings. I bet all of us use the word good on occasion, maybe frequently. I mean, in our culture, we say, oh, we had a good meal. Have you ever had a good meal before? Sure, we have, okay? We say things like, well, he's a good person. She's a good person, right? We say, oh, I had a good cry, okay? Um, Someone asked me, hey, Bart, how you doing? And I say, hey, I'm good. I'm good. We say that a lot, don't we? That's kind of fake, really, for most of us because there are always issues going on in our lives, and we just kind of, I'm good. I'm good, right? Someone asks, hey, would you like more ice cream? And I say, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. I'm good, right? We, we use this a lot. We tell our kids, be good. Now, now what we mean is <laughs> don't be bad, right? I mean, that's what we're saying. Don't pull your sister's hair and burn the house down. I mean, that's what we're trying to tell our kids. You, you be good. So we, we get this view, though, of what the Apostle Paul means by good in Romans 7, And he's writing about himself, but he could be writing about me, and I mean, honestly, he could be writing about you too. I mean, look what he says. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. You ever find yourself there? He says, instead, I do what I hate. And I know that nothing good, there's our word, good, lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, we could inject evil, but I do it anyway. He's saying, I don't want to follow, like he said in Galatians 5, I don't want to follow my sinful nature. I want to follow the Spirit. I don't want to do what is wrong. I want to do what is right. I want to do what is good. I don't want to do what is evil. Everybody follow that? Hmm. So, So we see Paul is contrasting this This good with wrong, or good with evil, or good with sinful. And then he just really drives it home in Romans 12, verse 9. He says, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. 
All the way through these scriptures, not in every case in the New Testament, but in the ones that I'm highlighting today, this word good is a very unique word um, in the original Greek. If you don't know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and then it's translated so that we can have it in English. And sometimes in the, in the translating process, sometimes the full meaning of, of the, the idea, the concept that the author is trying to get across is somewhat lost in translation. And so it's really good sometimes. I know you can really get hung up on the etymology, the word study, and all the Hebrew and the Greek and all that of the Bible. It's, it's really good sometimes to back up and just take a glance just to make sure that we're understanding what the Apostle Paul is trying to say by the word that he's using in Greek. And this Greek word is agathos. And it refers to what is upright, honorable, and acceptable to God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at that definition of what Paul is trying to give me, when he's calling me to hold tightly to what is good, which he means by that it is upright and honorable and acceptable to God, I don't ever think that way. In our culture, I'm thinking, no, I'm good. I don't want any more ice cream. Or he's a good guy. Or that's a good meal. That's not the good that I'm thinking about, but that's what Paul's trying to communicate. He, he's talking about, hang on here, he's talking about Morality. And that's not a word that we really like in our culture. I mean, morality is really skewed in our culture. Throughout Scripture, it's common to read that this kind of uprightness is found in God. I mean, look at these scriptures that I've listed. I could have listed a whole bunch of them. But Psalm 34, the psalmist says, Taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Um, Psalm 100 says, the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. Nahum, the prophet Nahum writes, the Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust him. And then even Jesus in Mark 10 uses exactly the same word, agathos, and he says, only God is good, upright. Wow. So God is good. God is has this essence of goodness in his nature. It's who he is. And Paul calls us to live like this. He, in fact, says, imitate God. Look what he says in Ephesians 5. Paul writes this. He says, imitate God in everything you do. Man, if that's a phrase that should be tattooed on our minds, that's it right there, isn't it? To imitate God in everything I do. Wow. That's a challenge. Imitate God in everything you do because you are his dear children. Let there be no immorality, which, by the way, is the opposite of goodness, right there. Impurity, again, opposite of goodness, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Do you see morality there? Good, right, true. It's, it's, he's completely talking about the idea, the concept of morality. Moral uprightness. Paul tells us how this is going to happen in our lives. Galatians 5, we look at it again. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We've already talked about those. Go on our podcast so you can catch up with us. But today, goodness. 
So, so this word goodness is a little bit different. The, the root was agathos, good. But the Greek word translated goodness, what Paul is using here in Galatians 5, is the word agathusune. And it means uprightness in heart and life. So there is a moral excellence, a, a moral uprightness. It has to do with morality, morally upright, not morally uptight, because I know some people like that, and you probably do too, right, where they're always picking on everybody, condemning everybody else. I'm not talking about being morally uptight, morally upright. Goodness is a focus on what is good, what is right, what is true. But it's not just simply a focus for the sake of being virtuous. It's more than that. See, goodness is holiness in action. That's a word that we haven't used in a long time in the church, holiness. It's, it's holiness in action. In fact, it's doing what God says is right in everyday life. You want to get that down on your outline. Doing what God says is right in everyday life. So that's what we're talking about, just so we're all on the same page. The work of the Holy Spirit to produce this fruit in us begins to affect everything that we do on the outside. Uh, the, the Apostle John wrote this in his third letter. He said, those who do good, same word, agathos, those who do good prove that they are God's children, and those who do evil prove that they do not know God. Wow, that's pretty clear. Good versus evil. But, but goodness is not just looking good on the outside. It's more than that. Goodness comes from a heart that is changed, a work that, that the Holy Spirit begins to do inside of us. And Paul talks about that in Romans 12. Look what he says. Don't copy the behavior or the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. You see how the change is taking place. Transforming us into a new person by changing the way you think. So, so it's in our mind, it's in our heart, it's in our will. And then he says, then you will learn to know God's will for you, God's plan in your life, what God wants to do in you and through you and for you. Look what he says. Then you will know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect, hmm. upright. See, Paul is saying God's plan for your life is to be morally upright. To be upright in heart and life. In all of life. To live that kind of life in the culture that you live in. I think one of the greatest examples of this is in the life of a guy in the Old Testament named Daniel. Now, the minute I mention Daniel, for some of us, we think of, um, you know, the fiery furnace that's listed in Daniel or the scary night in the lion's den, which we're going to talk about in a minute, or images of prophecy and stuff that you don't know. You know, it, it, and yet neither the miracles nor the prophecies make up the main point of what God is trying to communicate in this Old Testament book by the name of Daniel. God is trying to to get something else across to us. All of that stuff is important, but that's not what is most important. I think the book of Daniel gives us an incredible example of, of how to live a life and thrive in life in the most godless of cultures. 
which is really important for us today, right? Right? I mean, we, we live in a culture that has gone wild. And I'm not here to bash our culture, but I, you and I, we've got to agree that morality is almost gone in our culture. Author and pastor Larry Osborne, a conference that I was at this week, he says this, things, were once, things that were once shamefully hidden are now publicly celebrated. Wow. Now, what's interesting is Daniel lived in this kind of culture too. In fact, I, I would like to propose that Daniel is a lot like you and me. In fact, I think he's more like you and me than we realize. See, Daniel lived and moved and operated in this kind of culture, but he lived a life that was completely opposite to those around him. Completely opposite. And even though he lived differently, Daniel found favor in those around him and he was promoted to levels of great influence. The context is this. God had been repeatedly warning the leaders and the people of Judah to repent, to return to him, or suffer the consequences. And the people never listened. They never changed. They continued to obey, uh, disobey God. And so God hands Judah over to the Babylonians who came in. They took over the city. They besieged the city. And they carried off the best and the brightest of Jerusalem's young, um, young men, including Daniel and three of his good friends. And so this is all taking place, and yet Daniel never complains. If you don't know, the book of Daniel is actually kind of a journal of Daniel. And in that, he never complains. He never whines. He never despairs. See, because Daniel knew that God was in control of who was in control. And that's the thing that you and I need to understand. In the culture that we live in, it doesn't matter if you follow the donkey or the elephant. Hello? I believe that we should follow the Lamb of God because he's in control. And you and I need to realize that, that God is in control of who is in control. Now, I'm taking that up to top levels of government and stuff, but you can take that down into your job and into your school. God is in control of who is in control. So I don't know what your boss is like, but guess what? God is in control. Say that with me. God is in control. I don't know what your teacher or professor is like, but guess what? God is in control. We believe that. I believe that. That's what the Bible says. That's what I've experienced in my life. Hmm. Look what Daniel says. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now catch this phrase right here. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. Question. Who won the victory? Who gained the victory? Was Nebuchadnezzar all of that and that's why he was able to beat the king of Judah? Or was there something else or someone else in play? What does Daniel say? The Lord gave him the victory, right? Wow. You know what he's saying? God is in control of who is in control all the time. 
See, Daniel believed this. From Daniel's perspective, this was God's plan. Daniel clearly saw that God was at work in everything that was taking place. That's really important because of what we're going to read in just a minute. See, friends, when you believe that God is in control of everything, (laughs) it changes everything. No matter how bad it can get at work, no matter how bad it can get at home or at school or in your neighborhood or wherever you operate, function, and live, if you believe that God is in control, it changes everything for you. How do I know that? Because of what Paul says in Romans 8. Look what he says. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good, there's our word again, of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Hmm. Now, I, I got to be honest. Reading the story of Daniel in the book of Daniel in, in the, the Old Testament, there's no way to make sense of what goes on in Daniel's life and his response to ever, all the circumstances that he faces, there's no way to make sense of all of this without realizing that Dan- Daniel saw everything through the lens of God's control, that God was in control. Keep reading. Nebuchadnezzar ordered his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Look what he says. Nebuchadnezzar says, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking men. What is he saying? I want the best of the best, and they got to look good too, right? Look what he says. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning. What's he saying? They got to be smart. Don't bring any dumb ones into the room. They got to be the top. Look what he says. They are, make sure they're gifted with knowledge, with good judgment, and they are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. It says they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. Now, let's back up. What did Daniel believe? Daniel believed that God was in control of who was in control. Why is that important? Because now he's got to go serve that crazy king, Nebuchadnezzar. And you thought you had a tough boss. And you thought you had a tough professor in school. This guy is crazy. See, the thing that we fail to realize, but I want to spotlight is Daniel was working in a secular job. Don't miss this. All too often we think, oh, well, he was a prophet. And we think, oh, prophet, you know, he's serving God, and he's never fit. Kind of like how you think about pastors, and they never go through anything. If you saw my, my um, uh, Facebook a couple of weeks ago, I broke my toe a couple of weeks ago. I, I face things just like you do, right? I mean, we, we, we all go through life, and all the time we look at Daniel and people in the Bible, and we think, oh, well, they, they don't ever face anything like I face. Daniel was being forced to serve a crazy boss in a secular job, and he didn't want to go. This would not have been his first choice. Listen, he didn't apply for this job. He did not send in his resume for what he was being forced to do. He was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was just a guy like you and me. 
Daniel worked for a boss who was godless, who was an egomaniac. I mean, he, he built a 90-foot statue in honor of himself and said, everybody's got to worship the statue of me. Think about that one. That's an egomaniac, right? And here's the scary part. He was the all-powerful leader of the world at that time. Anything he wanted, he could do. And this is who he was. He was known to be hot-headed, murderous, unreasonable, and incredibly cruel. Later, King Nebuchadnezzar ordered his wise men to interpret a dream, which you say, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, then the wise men are supposed to counsel him and advise him and all that. Yeah, but he didn't want to tell him the dream. He said, I want you to interpret my dream, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You have to come to me and tell me what my dream is, and then tell me what it means. And if you don't, you're dead. Like, you're gone. Now, that's not any pressure, right? For a job. I mean, do you guys have deadlines like that? Deadlines, get it? <laughs> do you have any deadlines like that? Where you're going to be killed if you don't produce? No. Daniel was one of these guys. And, and what's interesting is he came in and he said, I want this done right now. And he sent the commander of his guard to them. The, the wise men said, we can't do it. We can't pull this off. We don't know your dreams. Please tell us your dream. Then we'll help. And he's like, nope, not going to happen that way. You're dead. Sorry. So he sent his commander of the guard to kill them, and Daniel found out of what was going on. Obviously, Daniel wasn't in the room when this conversation was taking place, and so Daniel went to the king, and he said, no, no, can you give us some more time? Because I, I want to go away, and I want to pray about it. So the king granted him more time overnight. He goes, okay, overnight. Tomorrow morning, you're going to be dead if this doesn't happen. So Daniel told his friends, he said, the king has given us more time. You know what he said to his friends? Pray, 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 please pray because we're gonna be dead tomorrow if this doesn't happen. That night, as Daniel slept, God gave him the meaning, not just the dream, but the meaning of the dream in a vision. So Daniel said, can I see the king? He was taken to the king and this is what happens, Daniel too. The king said to Daniel, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel said, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, and fortune tellers who can tell the king's secret. <laughs> and I bet all the other wise men are going, what are you doing? We're going to die. He says, but, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has chosen King Nebuchadnezzar, has shown rather, King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. So Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar the dream and its meanings. In verse 47, it says, The king said to Daniel, Your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position. Do you see now how he's moving up? Not by kissing up, not by compromise, not by working the weekends, hello, just by being who he is and believing in his God, says, gave him a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole 
province of Babylon. And then to top it, he says, oh yeah, and over, chief of over all the wise men too. You are the wisest of the wise in my kingdom. Hmm. So I give you this backstory for a reason. Because in Daniel 6, some things turn. This, Daniel has moved to this high level of influence. It's an amazing level of influence that God has allowed him to step into. And you say, well, that's you know, because he was a prophet. No, he was a guy like you working a secular job. And the reason that he stood for his God is because he believed in his God and there was no compromise in his life. And even though he was living his life differently than everybody else, he moved up the ladder. Don't ever tell me that you can't get promoted because I don't want to tell them I'm a Christian because that'll, you know, that'll hold me back. I don't, want to, I don't want to tell them that I believe in God because that'll hold me back in my job. Have you read the Bible lately? I don't know about you, but I'd like to be over the province of Babylon. In my job, in your job, wouldn't you like to have that kind of promotion take place in your job? Maybe, uh oh, maybe, this is off note, Shane, don't try to follow me. Maybe God is saying, if you live the way I'm asking you to live, you would get more of my plan in your life. But we don't do it that way. We compromise. Oh, I'm not going to say anything. Oh, I'm going to give in to this. Oh, I'm going to be okay with this. And, and all the time you're stepping away from living morally upright. You notice every time I'm doing this, I'm moving like this. Because this is what we do. And we get lower and we get lower. And God is saying, stand up. Stand up in your job, in your school, in your culture, in your city. Stand up for what is right and what God says. It's time that we, as followers of Jesus, stand up. Not be jerks, but stand up for what we believe. And don't back down. Hold tight to what is good. Daniel 6, a regime change takes place. You ever have a new boss come into town? A new professor of a new class? Man, new manager. Oh, man, here they go. They're going to start changing everything, right? This is what's taking place, and... Darius comes in, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is now gone, the, the Persian king changes now, the, the king of the Medes takes over, and, and um, Darius takes charge of what is taking place in this region. He is now the powerful king. It says that Darius thought, Daniel 6, it would be good, a good idea to choose 120 governors who would rule his kingdom. And he chose three men as supervisors over those governors. So, I mean, 120 governors. I mean, I, I mean, just think about it. I mean, we have 50 states, so we have 50 governors, right? This is 120 governors. And he's picking three guys to be over the 120 governors. And, and look at this. It says, and Daniel was one of those supervisors. So he was one of the top three in a new king's regime. Don't miss that. I mean, most of the time when a new king takes over, what happens to the old regime? They're gone, right? But Daniel was good enough that the new king wanted him to stay. Good enough that the new king wanted him in his top three. Wow. Look what takes place. 
Daniel showed that he could do the work better than the other supervisors. <laughs> so the king planned to put Daniel in charge of the whole kingdom. Here we are again. He moves to number two, to, to a new king. And it says because of this, uh-oh, the other supervisors and governors tried to find reasons to accuse Daniel about his work in the government. Huh. But they could not find anything, what's that next word? Wrong with him or any reason to accuse him because he was trustworthy and not lazy or dishonest. Daniel is an example of the faultless aspect of goodness, morally upright. His opponents couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. I want you to circle that word wrong on your outline. Would you do that? It's an interesting word. It doesn't mean wrong with his work. That's not what the, the writer's talking about. It is a Hebrew word that means corruption, or get this, immorality. They could not find any dirt to dig up on Daniel. And we've seen this all over our government, right? They're constantly trying to dig up dirt on politicians and new appoints and new, new candidates for positions. And the media and the opposing parties are trying to dig up all this dirt. And they do it all the time and they pull out stuff from 20 years ago and 30 years ago and hey, look at this, you know. And they did that. Don't miss this. They did that. And there was nothing about Daniel. This week, I, I couldn't let go of this, that there was nothing that they could accuse him about. You know why I couldn't let go of this? Because just like you, I have things in my past that I wouldn't want people to bring to the public. And all of us are like that. But Daniel was living a life that was morally upright. Nothing could be accused against him in a culture that was godless. Wow. His opponents could find nothing. Daniel was living a morally upright life, heart and life. His opponents convinced the king to write a law they said, you know what, we can't find anything against him, so we know that he is a guy who follows God, so we're going to use that to our advantage. And they will go to the king, King Darius, and they say, we would need you to write a law that, that um, no one can pray to anyone or any god but to you, O King Darius, because you are so great for over the next 30 days, no one can do that. And anyone who disobeys this law and prays to some other God or some other person other than you for the next 30 days will be thrown into a den full of hungry lions and eaten alive. And the king goes, wow, that sounds cool. And he signs it. He agrees to it. He signs it. And unfortunately, if you remember history, world history class, the laws of the Medes and Persians can never be changed. And that was the case. And so what does Daniel do? Take a look. He hides and he compromises and he stops praying 
He goes, oh, you know, God, I know that you want to keep me safe and you want to keep me secure because the safest place is in the center of your will. And so I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm just going to do it in silence and in quiet. And they're just going to, they're not going to know anything. No, that's not what he did. That's the way we operate, right? But that's not what Daniel did. Look what Daniel says. Even though Daniel knew that the new law had been written, he went to pray in an upstairs room in his house with windows Opened toward Jerusalem, three times each day, Daniel would kneel down to pray and thank God, just as he always had done. Did you catch that last phrase? Just like he'd always done. Nothing changed. Daniel was who Daniel was because God is in control of those who are in control. So his opponents found him. They found him praying. They went to the king. They reminded the king of the law that he had signed, and they told him that Daniel was willfully disobeying the law. Darius liked Daniel. Obviously, he made him his number two, his second in command. He really liked Daniel, but he was stuck. His hands were tied because of the law of the Medes and the Persians. And it says, so King Darius gave the order. Daniel was brought in, thrown into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may the, may the God who you serve all the time, don't miss that. His boss is saying, this God who you serve all the time, I know you do, may this God save you. <laughs> Big stone was brought, placed over the opening of the lion's den. The king used his signet ring and the rings of the royal officers to put special seals on the rock so it would never be opened up. And then it says King Darius went back to his palace and he didn't eat and he didn't have any, any entertainment and he couldn't sleep. He was troubled. The next morning, King Darius got up at dawn and he hurried to the lion's den. And as he came near to the den, he called out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God that you always worship, remember he's here, he's saying it again, that you always worship, has your God been able to save you from these lions? And Daniel said, oh king, you big jerk. You big dummy? No, he didn't say that, did he? He could have, right? And a lot of us do that on occasion. We pray for our boss, and then we criticize them behind the scenes. Uh-oh, didn't mean to step on your toes there, but actually I did. We do that. Okay, Daniel's saying, oh, king, you, you live forever. I serve you. I don't like where I'm at. This would not be my first choice of a job. And you are a really lousy boss but I serve you, and I will give you my best. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to close the lion's mouths. They have not hurt me because my God knows I am what? Oh, innocent. Come on now, come on. Could we say that? Can you say that about yourself? Can I say that about me in all areas of my life? Can I say I'm innocent? He was innocent. I never did anything wrong. Wow. You know what that is? That is the fruit of goodness. That's it. Morally upright. Daniel had the fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life before Paul ever wrote Galatians 5. 
centuries before. Daniel is living it. And he has got the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is goodness, moral uprightness in his life. And then we read, King Darius told his servants to lift Daniel out of the lion's den. So they lifted him out and did not find any injury on him. The lions hadn't even touched him. Because Daniel had trusted in his God. Mm, man, that's good. Now some people say that God took away the lion's hunger. But they can't, they can't be true. And how I know that that's not true is you read the next verse. The king commanded that the men who had accused Daniel be brought to the lion's den. They, their wives, their children were thrown into the lion's den. And the lions grabbed them before they hit the floor and crushed their bones. Wow, that is pretty vivid. Before they hit the floor, the lions were chomping on their bodies. See, I, I know, I really believe, I know why the lions didn't eat Daniel. This is kind of funny coming from a vegan. Lions are carnivores. Lions don't eat fruit. Right? He had the fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life. Daniel had the fruit of goodness in his life. Daniel was morally upright. That was a joke, by the way. Daniel was morally upright. And some of you are like, what? Yeah. Okay. Daniel was morally upright in heart and life. Daniel, get this, Daniel remained morally upright in an evil culture. He remained morally upright in a secular job. Don't ever tell me you can't be a Christian in your job. Daniel remained morally upright when most people weren't. Daniel was morally upright in heart and life. Only the Holy Spirit can do this in us. But did you know that we make a choice? We're always given a choice. We're always given a choice. Are we going to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And we have got to position ourselves to, to get in on what God wants to do in our life. That is our choice. And I noticed two habits, and this is what I want to wrap off with. I noticed two habits in Daniel's life that I think can help us open up ourselves to the, the production of moral uprightness in our lives more. And listen to me, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, we need Jesus followers to take a stand in our culture. Now, I'm not saying go out and picket. I'm not saying write nasty stuff online. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying live the life where you are with no compromise. First, get this down. Spend time alone with God daily. You say, Bart, you have said that every week of our series. Yes, I have. You know why? Because I believe it. We saw it, right? We saw it in Daniel. How many times would Daniel kneel down and pray each day? How many times, remember? Three times. Everybody hold up three fingers with me, would you? Three. How many of you are doing that three times a day? How many of you are spending time alone with God three times a day? I'm not. <gasps> Pastor's not? No, I'm not. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Most of us, we struggle we struggle getting one time a day. And he was doing it three times a day. 
it's because he was so godly. No, it's because he knew he needed it. He lived in a godless culture, and he was serving a godless boss in a life that he did not choose. And he's saying, God, I trust you. I got to have so much of you, or I am not going to make it. And three times a day, he would spend time with God. We've talked about this all throughout this series. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not going to affect your life if you are not connecting yourself to the source. Jesus tells us, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain disconnected from God, if you are not spending time daily with God, You'll never get any of this. And this is a big statement. Why are you wasting your time saying that you're following a Christian path in your life if you are not doing this? If you are not spending time with the source that can change your life, you are wasting your time. Hmm. Next, obey God fully. Even in the little areas. Back in the beginning of the story, we're told that they were assigned a diet. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from the king's kitchens, from the king's table. And look at what happens in verse 8 of Daniel 1. Daniel was determined not to defile himself. He was determined to continue to stay morally upright says, to not defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. So he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. You say, well, he was Jewish and it had to be kosher and all of this. And I, I, I get that. But the part that grabs me are the words, determined not to defile himself. Now, I'm not talking about eating kosher food here today. But what if we were to apply that, determine not to defile myself in my language and in what I watch and what I read and what I consume and put in my body? What if we were to say, I'm not going to defile myself morally, I'm not going to defile myself? How many areas in our life would be affected? Say it another way. How many of us would have to clean up a lot of areas in our life if we were determined today, I'm not going to defile myself? Hmm. That's what Daniel was doing. Daniel was obeying fully, even in the little areas. And the question you have to ask yourself is what is God asking me to do? Am I obeying in the little areas? Are you? Because it's the little areas that are going to cause you to fall. You're only going to remain upright morally if even in the little areas you fully obey God. Would you bow your heads with me?